And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they, had no further, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all, who, for all were praising God for what had happened. Please be seated and take a moment to reflect on God's word. Keep your hand there on Acts chapter 4 and turn several chapters or several books over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 6, 7, and 8. I want to just use this as the opening. Uh, Second Timothy is a letter that the Apostle Paul, who's in prison and he's dying and he's probably not going to come out and he doesn't come out except for to be beheaded. He's writing this is his last letter and he's writing it to his younger disciple, 
the person who's following him, who's the church. He planted a church in Ephesus, and Timothy's coming behind, and he's the, the second church leader there in Ephesus. And so he's writing this letter of encouragement to his young uh, disciple, and he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, For this reason... I'm reminding, I'm, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. My primary goal this morning is to encourage you in your faith, uh, to strengthen your commitment to, to courage, courageously move out of the safe confines of these four walls and to move out into the community. It might be in your neighborhood or workplace or somewhere else here in Wilmington, but to, to move out with purpose, to move out with courage, to move out with a, a strong faith and to be willing to suffer. Uh, as I said, the Apostle Paul is here in his, his final letter to this, what we think of as this young, fearful uh, person coming behind Paul. And so he's, he's, he's encouraging Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, Paul knows that in every culture there's going to be hostility to the gospel. And there's always going to be reasons for the people who trust in the gospel to shrink back. So he's saying God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but he gave us a spirit of power. And you can just you can just get a sense of this um, energy that Paul's trying to give from himself into Timothy, who's going to uh, keep the faith and move the church forward. And Paul, with his dying breath, like a, a billow on a small coal, is trying to, to fan into flame the faith and the gifts that Timothy possesses. And really, that's my goal for this sermon, is to, to take whatever small faith and gifts that you may have and to try to be like a billow and just blow hot air on those and fan that into flame. Because the arguments and hostilities to the gospel still exist. They may be different than what Timothy faced. They may be different than what we face in India as a church than they are in America. But, but all cultures, all people outside of the gospel uh, are resistant to this kind of change. And there's always going to be reasons to shrink back. There's always going to be reasons to be afraid. But we've been given the same spirit of power, not of fear. We've been given the opportunity to share the gospel and to share in the sufferings that come in sharing the gospel. And so I'm trying to fan these gifts into flame. I'm pleading with you, like the parable, to not bury your talents. I mean, you may have one or you may have ten. But the worst thing you can do with whatever you have is to bury it. And so often we, we bury it in our comfort we bury it in busyness we bury it in apathy you can bury it in materialism you can bury your gifts in xbox and twitter and pinterest there's all kinds of ways to bury the gifts that you've been given and so i want to i want to encourage you and i want to do this by examining uh, acts chapter four and then by relating some of the experiences that we had in india the last couple of weeks while we were over there with our brothers and sisters 
in the church there. So let's think about Acts chapter 4 and turn back there and get some background. Jesus had promised the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. So uh, you remember the Spirit comes down on the disciples, this small room that they're in, and they're praying, and the disciples begin to speak in tongues. They're, they're speaking in another language. It's a, it's a known language. It's just not known to them. And they start speaking, and what they're doing is proclaiming the gospel. And the people that are there, they're, they're there from all over the world for this big festival. And they're saying, we're hearing the gospel in our own language. And everyone's amazed, but there are some people in the group, and we're not surprised, they're mocking. They're hostile. They think it's foolishness. They think the disciples have been drinking too much wine early in the morning. And then if you look back with me in chapter 2, verse 14, this is one of the critical verses in the book of Acts. Peter and the 11 disciples who previously had run away from Jesus, if you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're all filled with the power of the Spirit. And instead of running away, look at chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter... This is just the key phrase. It's easy to run right by it. Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So if you, if you get the picture, here are these, these twelve men at the Garden of Gethsemane. They all scatter. Peter himself denies Jesus, as you remember. And now here they are. Here's this next big leadership moment. And they've been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And some of these rulers and authorities are coming in. And they're immediately trying to, 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 to quench the Spirit. And what would, be, what would these 11 guys do? They're in the shadow of the cross still. They understand what happens to people who are willing to put their lives out on the line for the gospel. And in this very critical moment, you can imagine this like a team they begin to sense this hostility. They begin to sense this pushback. And, and I, I would love a picture of this moment. They, they look at each other. Somebody nods. And then they all stand up. Such, such a great and powerful moment. Uh, a, a pastor that we met in India, his name is Nathan. He's one of the leaders of Alpha Ministries, which is a ministry that is primarily a, a church planting network in India. In India, there's 1.3 billion people. The, the land mass is one-third of the United States size. So you can imagine we have about 350 million people. So they have 1.3 billion people in a landmass that's a third the size. So it's very densely populated. And at least 85% of the people there are Hindu. And in India, being Indian is also being Hindu. It's sort of the same thing. So if somebody convert, converts from Christi, to Christianity, they're not, all, not only dismissing the religion, they're dismissing their country. It's like you're unpatriotic. So it's very difficult to get people to have a hearing for the gospel. And, and uh, Nathan, this pastor, is 57 years old. He smiles and laughs all the time. He's, he's just one of these guys that joy just sort of flows out of him. You don't have to know him. You don't even have to know what he's saying, which I didn't most of the time. But, but he's just so joyful, and it just comes across. And 25 years ago, he was a practicing Hindu as a young man. Everyone who met Christ in India was uh, previously a practicing Hindu. 
And he met someone from Alpha who told him about Jesus, gave him a Bible. And as he read the Bible, he said, my heart was just warmed by this truth. And I began to read and read. And then I was transformed by the reading of the Bible and having conversations with other people. And Nathan, who had moved away from his original hometown and had gotten married, is now traveling back to his hometown, his village. And he's telling his family, he's telling the people in the village about Christ. And he's, after a few days being there, he's beaten and he's thrown out of his town. This this happens all the time. Today, Holt was just showing me a picture of uh, maybe one of the pastors that came to our conference. Uh, His back, badly beaten. Because he went to his village and a hundred people were waiting for him at the village as he came in to beat him. Because they knew he was going to proclaim the gospel. And so this is a typical story. And Nathan's dad, who is a Hindu, still loves his son. He's sympathetic to his son. He doesn't believe what his son believes. But he tells his son, son, if you keep coming back, if you keep staying here, you're going to be killed. And harm's going to come to us as your family. So please leave. And so he leaves, starts having children, and just occasionally he or his wife would come back. Eventually, Nathan's brother becomes a Christian, stays in the village. And now, even though it's a very densely populated village, it's millions of Hindu gods. There's a little core of believers, very small group. But the hostility is starting to lessen. People are beginning to get hearing of the gospel. So in Acts chapter 4, the disciples, they're standing in the shadow of the cross. They understand if you take this forward, this is what happens to people who proclaim the gospel in this community. But they're standing up. They're they're willing to, to go against what the people in the village or the people that are religious authorities say. Acts chapter 3. Sometime later, Peter and John go up to the temple on their way. They see a man who's lame from birth, and there he's sort of outside the temple begging for people, begging from people who are coming in, and they heal this man. And not surprising, this man gets up and starts walking. He's walking into the temple, and everybody's sort of following after, and a big crowd becomes gets around Peter and John, and then Peter uses the opportunity to preach the gospel, and that brings us to Acts chapter 4. Uh, the, the temple is uh, a structure, and then outside the structure is a, is a large platform. You might think of it like a parking lot. It's very huge, and that's where lots of meetings would take place. And the authorities are saying, hey, what's happening over there? There's a large crowd of people, and some person who's not authorized is sort of standing on a platform or standing on a box, and he's saying something about Jesus and it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 2, or Acts 4, verse 2, they're greatly annoyed or they're, they're disturbed. And so they abruptly interrupt this sermon by Peter and John, and they arrest them, and they put them in jail. And when you look at Acts chapter 4 here in these first few verses, you're supposed to notice how many uh, people or individuals or groups of individuals are hostile against Christianity. There's at least 11 people or categories that are hostile to the gospel. So you get a sense of the environment. Uh, Spence and Holt and David and myself, when we went to India, we, we went for several different reasons. One was to, to examine this ministry, Alpha Ministries, this church planting network, to see if it's something that we as a church want to partner with. 
But the specific reason we went in March is because they have a pastor's conference and Spence and David and I were the, the main, we were the only speakers for this conference. Uh, the church was planted by uh, a, a founder, a Billy Graham type figure. You wouldn't know him, but in India, he's like Billy Graham. And he moved to the northern part of India where there was no known churches. And he began to plant churches in the 1960s. And now here, 30, 45 years later, uh, there's 2,000 churches. It's a funny little story that was just sort of told on the side that when uh, this man and his wife moved to this town of, uh, called Baroda, which is sort of a medium-sized town in India of 12 to 14 million people, uh, he goes into this town. There's no church. And he's just sort of out on the street. You can imagine you went to a, a city of 14 million people. There's no Christianity. What do you do? And so he's just out on the street. He's just talking to people about Jesus, whatever, whatever he can do to get an audience. He's trying that. Well, he's doing this week after week after week after week. And the man has one pair of pants. And week after week, it's, they're getting worn and torn. And so the, the, the wife has to sew them back up. And she sewed them up so many times. She got so frustrated that the, when, it, when he asked one more time, she tore up the pair of pants. And so now he's in this sitting in his home. He has no pants. He cannot he cannot leave his home. And his wife said, look, if the Lord wants to plant a church, he can provide some pants for you. So imagine here you are. You're an evangelist. You're stuck in your home in your underwear. That's all. That's all you got. And so for two days, nothing happens. And, and then somebody comes by and says, hey, you have a, 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 a parcel at the mailbox. He said, well, I can't go get it. You know, I can't I can't go anywhere. Can, can you go get it? Sure. So the guy comes back with this big box of a dozen pants. There were hundreds of these stories from these people. They, they were completely dependent on God for every resource, and they still are. And here they are now, 50 years later, they have 2,000 churches in this, in this region. And so now they need to train their pastors, and we were honored to go and be the speakers there. David and Spence and I together, we taught 18 different sessions. Additionally, David preached a sermon at a church two Sundays ago, and I preached a sermon at a different church. And then there was a sort of a closing rally at one of these conferences of 1,500 people, and I spoke at that. So we're really honored to be a part of what they were doing And during the time, we would talk to the pastors and we would ask this question, what's a primary issue that you face as a pastor? I mean, we're there trying to encourage them. So we're trying to get a sense. What's what are two or three things that are really sort of uh, hard for you guys? And they only said one thing and everyone said the same thing. Persecution. And so we're sitting there trying to figure out how to encourage these men who are going to be thrown out of the villages that they go to for the first time, maybe beaten, maybe cost some of their lives. And I, I say this from Acts chapter 4, the, the, the courage, the boldness of Peter and John and the disciples, and then these people in India, to, to remind us that if you and I are going to take the gospel outside of these four walls, just into to our city, And especially if we want to say chapter 4, verse 14, or chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. 
If you're going to say that in our culture, you should and you will get hostility. Now, you probably won't be beaten, but you'll be ignored. You'll be told that you're foolish or narrow or, or you'll, all kinds of things. Or just what people will walk away and say, yeah, that's that little narrow group over there at Christ Community or that person. That's what you think. So when you go out and you make a unique claim about Christ, you can expect hostility no matter what culture that you're in. Well, in Acts chapter 4, verse 5, the next day they arrest Peter and John, and then the next day they bring them before the authorities, all these names that are listed there. And they're asking, by what name or what power did you do this? Well, how did you do this miracle of healing this man who was lame? And then you notice in verse 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and then begins to ta- he begins to say something, which reminds us of that passage in Luke 12. When Jesus is looking at his disciples and saying, hey, you guys, you're going to be put before authorities at some point. And he says this, when you are brought before the synagogues, the rulers and authorities, this is Luke 12:11. do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time. So this is coming true here in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested. They're standing here before the authorities, just as Jesus said. And now he's being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to make a little sermon here. And I would just want to point out to you the five points that he makes. Number one, Jesus has the power to heal crippled people. They're interested in whose name, whose power can heal this person. He's saying Jesus can heal this person. Jesus can heal crippled people. And we need to remember when we see miracles like this, whether they're from Jesus or the apostle, the miracle is the sign. It's not the destination. The miracle says everyone's spiritually crippled. And we're using this physical manifestation of healing to help you understand you're spiritually crippled if you don't know Christ. And he alone can come in and take care of broken souls. Second, Jesus was crucified, he says. Romans 5, 8 says this, God demonstrates his own love for us. And this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So think about these religious people. These are the religious elite. They're keeping the law. They're making sure they're good enough to get in. And when they hear Peter say, hey, Jesus died for your sins. Imagine what they might say. What do, you, what do you mean my sins? I mean, I'm so much better than everybody around me. My ledger of good deeds is so much longer than my small little ledger of bad deeds. We're living the right way. And what Peter's trying to help them see and perhaps some of us need to see is that when you come to Jesus, you have to repent of your sins and you have to repent of your good deeds. You have to repent of your sins and you have to repent of your good deeds. Meaning, if you thought your good deeds were good enough to get you in, you have to say, God, I'm repenting of that. I don't have enough good deeds to get in. I'm sorry I even thought that way. I'm depending on your good deed for me to get in. Jesus was raised from the dead, the third point. Jesus' resurrection, as we'll talk about in Easter, is, is proof That he has the power to conquer death. Number four, Jesus is the cornerstone of a new temple, verse 11. See, all these Old Testament shadows 
are now found as the reality in Christ. So whether it's the Lamb of God and Jesus is the Lamb of God or the temple where you met God, Christ is the new temple. He's the cornerstone. You don't need a priest and you don't need a temple to find God or meet God. You need Jesus to meet with God. Verse 12, the fifth point, salvation cannot be found in any other name. Now, if you think this is controversial in America, and it's probably one of the most controversial statements you can make in our culture, imagine living where there are 30 million gods and making this claim. It's it's incredibly how pervasive the religion is. You would imagine it would be at 85%, but it really caught me off guard the, the gods are everywhere. We went to this beautiful multi-million dollar marble temple. And there the priests in the temple are bowing down and worshiping other priests who are gods. And then they go upstairs to another worship area and they're bowing down and singing to another group of, of uh, old. They're, they're wax figures, but they're old people who were also gods. And then on the side, there's the monkey god, and there's the elephant god, and there's the, the naked god who walked along the side of the street that people would come up and worship him, and he was the naked god. And then the cows in the street are gods in some way. At the hotel that we checked into, right, right across the counter, just like a normal hotel, little picture of a god, little incense bowl that you put some flowers in somebody would walk by there and they would make a prayer and put some incense it's just everywhere it's it's everywhere you go and so when you come into this particular culture and you say hey there's no need for all this there's just one god spence and i were in the market and talking to a lady who was selling uh statues of these gods which you could go any store has these things and they're very small to very large. We were in a place that the statues cost five to $10,000 to buy. You would put them in your house and you would worship this idol, this statue. So the lady was selling them. We were asking about Hinduism. And she was telling us about the millions of gods and different things like that. And she would say, well, do you believe in God? And we said, yes, we believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, he's one of the gods. But see, if you say, no, he's the only God, and all this stuff is just rock and stone, you're going to get beaten. When you tell somebody there's just one way, it's not, hallelujah, there's a way at all. It's, how, how can there just be one way? Why can't it be the way I want? doesn't matter what culture you're in. doesn't matter what culture I'm in. There's going to be hostility to this uniqueness of Christ. Most of us will remember this line from mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis writes this. You can shut Jesus up as a fool. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. See, he either is unique and he is God or he's not. He's foolishness. He's, he's lying, he, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Now let's finally notice this char- some character traits that are portrayed here about the disciples. First, uneducated and common, but they had been with Jesus. So the, the authorities are looking at the disciples and saying, hey, we haven't seen them in any of our schools. 
We don't see any kind of credentials. I don't see any kind of PhD across from the back of their name. And they're common. They're just like everybody else. There's nothing particularly special about them. And, of course, that helps us realize God's not looking for intelligent people. He's not looking for wealthy people. He's not looking for popular people. He's looking for faithful people. That's the kind of person God is wanting to use. People who are commons, people who are uneducated, but people who are faithful, people who have been with him, and no matter the cost, they're going to keep following after Jesus. One of the most impressive parts about um, the ministry, and there were many, many things that were impressive, but one of them was how well they allowed the younger leaders to lead. And so there's a vacation Bible school. I know this is going to imagine if you're on the vacation Bible school team. I'm looking at Lisa because she does a lot of vacation Bible school. But a lot of us here do vacation Bible school. Well, this was a two-day sort of vacation Bible school. While we were doing the teaching, they're having kids, 300 kids. Okay, and their church is the size of our lobby. That's the only structure they have. So they have 300 kids, and they have a lot. They have a church that's the size of our lobby, and they're going to spend the night. So you're going to feed them, you're going to take care of them, you're going to get them into groups, they're going to sleep some all over the place, 300 mats all over the place, outside, everywhere. Uh, maybe 5 years old to 12 years old, that was the age, 300 of these. And so most of the energy, there were adult leaders there, but most of the energy came from these kids who were 15 to 18, 19 years old. They're, they all have a group of people. They're all singing. They're all leading. They're all teaching Bible verses. They're the next generation of leaders. And surrounded this area is a, is a village hostile, all Hindu, all hostile to Christianity. And there they are singing to the top of their voice with these 300 kids songs about Jesus. It's incredibly impressive. And while we were there, Benny, the guy who was leading us, he invited this group of teenage girls to come over, and he introduced them. There were seven or eight of them. And then he said, I want to, I want to tell you a story about this one girl. Beautiful. I mean, everybody in India seems beautiful, you know, because they all look dark skin and they're very different looking. So, you know, it's kind of like the shiny object. You go, wow, everybody here is beautiful. Um, glasses, 16-year-old girl. She, she just came, hey, I want, to know, I want to let you know, she just came to Christ about a year ago. She met somebody in Alpha Ministries in the city of Baroda. She really loves the Lord. She's been with Jesus. When she went home and told her parents, her parents beat her. But she doesn't have, I mean, there's no resources. There's no government to, to you know, go back to. You just have to stay in your home. You have to still just get being beaten by your dad, who's hostile to Christianity, even though you're living there. And so he's telling the story, and this little 16-year-old girl, she's just starting to cry because she's, she's remembering her story. But yet, when she went, goes back to the group of maybe 50 or 60 uh, second and third grade girls, that was her group, she's just singing joyously to the Lord. See, she, she had been with Jesus... She knew it was going to cost a lot to say, I love the Lord and follow after the Lord. She's willing to give her life away to kids and maybe even risk her own life by going back to her hometown. For, for, for these leaders, their, their faith flowed like a river. They had been with Jesus and then it just flowed out of them. They, they weren't like the Dead Sea 
where you just get a lot of information, but you have no outlet. Yeah, I've studied the Bible, and I've done this Bible study, and I've been here, and I go to the worship service, but, but I don't have an outlet. That's the Dead Sea. Lots of good information coming in, but there's no outlet, so eventually it sort of stagnates. That, that wasn't the case for any of these people. They had been with Jesus, and just immediately, whether you were 16 or 60, it just imme- you immediately turned back, and it just began to flow through you to whatever group that you could be involved with. They were uneducated. They were common. The disciples, they were bold. Uh, they had been hurt. They had hurt. They've got ec- this echo in their in their mind. The Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so they're looking at the authorities. The authorities are hostile to them, and they're saying, "I just don't care what you say. I've got to. I've got to obey what the Lord has said." And I'm going to keep moving forward, Peter and John and the disciples, or I'm going to die trying. One night after one of these conferences, it was about an hour away from where we were staying. We were traveling back. It's me and David and another pastor from America and then three pastors from India. And when there's sort of small SUV and uh, we're just talking, they all mostly understand English and talk English. So we're all kind of just talking together and just different kind of popcorn conversation like you imagine just being here. And one of them starts talking about some region in India that has 30 million people and they don't know of a church in the area. I'm sorry, 300 million people. So some segment of northern India, it's in this 1040 window, if you know the missions term, 300 million people, they don't know of a church. And they're kind of excitedly talking about it. And then one of them high-fived the other and said, but we're going to be the first one in. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a prideful thing. Nobody's going to know these people. You're never going to meet these people. You're never going to hear of them. But they understood when, when you hit the beach at Normandy, what happens to the first few in? They don't tell the stories because they don't make it. But, but they lay down their lives for another generation, another group. And so I was just thinking, these guys, they're all, well, I mean, Pastor Nathan, he's 57, and the other two guys were maybe 40 and then 32. Here they are, they're, they're high-fiving each other like, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be the ones. So, the, so they're bold. And then verse 19, they're fearless. We will keep speaking the truth. The authorities realize they can't do anything too big because this crowd... But they just say, you can't say anything else about Jesus. This is exactly what happens if you're in in India. You walk in, hey, you can stay, but you just can't say anything else about Jesus. One man that I wish we could have spoken more to, uh, our interpreter said, he's the most interesting man that I know. And best we could tell, he's kind of like an Apostle Paul-like figure. He was a radical Hindu. So he's aggressively promoting Hinduism. And even though he's aggressively promoting Hinduism, he has an emptiness and he has addictions that he can't find help on from 30 million gods. And he travels around. He does all the worship. He's trying to get some help from any one of these millions of gods, and he can't seem to get help. And then somebody tells him about Jesus. So he goes to the person's house, and the person has a picture of Jesus with a little incense bowl underneath it, and they're giving worship to Jesus in the picture just like if it was an elephant or a cow. 
And he's saying, okay, I guess this is the real Jesus. Fortunately, somebody came in and said, hey, no, you need to read the Bible. And so he read the Bible and his life was changed. And then he took his aggressiveness towards Hinduism and then he became aggressive in a kind way with Christianity. And he lives in one of the most hostile areas to Christianity. Just like the Apostle Paul, he took all of his aggressive from Judaism, and now he's moving it to Christianity. And the guy built a small church right next to the temple in one of the villages, and he put a speaker, he mounted a speaker on the outside, and it blasted the message of the gospel as he was preaching it into the temple. Well, he's immediately arrested, beaten. And he starts making converts of the Hindu prisoners. So they're like, okay, this isn't helpful. He's making converts wherever he goes. So we let him back out, and we just try to keep him corralled. And he has all these kind of wild stories of how the police show up and say, well, we know it's this guy, but let's just try to keep him contained in some way. Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's eye to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen And what we have heard. One of those interesting comments about this guy from one of the pastors that said he's no longer afraid to go to prison. I just thought, would that be me? I'm not afraid to spend the rest of this life in prison. See, once he wasn't afraid of that, then he was free. See, he realized this life is just the beginning of life. So if he loses his life in prison for 20 or 30 or 40 years, compared to a billion years, it's nothing. But if this life is everything you have and you have to get the most out of this life because it's all there is, then you can't go to prison. You're not free. Ajith Fernando is a missionary to a small island out just off the coast of India, a little country called Sri Lanka. And he's been a missionary. He's, he's a native, and he builds churches, and he comes back to America often to preach at conferences. And he said this at a conference. I have a fear the church in the West will disqualify itself from sending missionaries. Because the church in the West tells its membership that Christianity is a nice religion, but you don't need to suffer. For example, a minor feature like worship, which brings enjoyment, has become a major feature. Such a church may grow in numbers, but it will not produce the type of disciples who will turn the world upside down. As we think about the launch of the early church here in Acts chapter 4, as we hear these stories and we're encouraged by the growth and the suffering of the church in India, let's just think about how we can make some application to ourselves. We're, we're in a church in Wilmington. God has he, us here for a purpose. And I would say before you think about turning the world upside down, I would just encourage you to think how you need to turn your own life upside down. Let's not start with the world. It's a little too big. What, what sacrifice do you need to make personally to be free to give the gospel? Might be a financial thing, might be an emotional thing, might be a relational thing. I don't know what it would be. 
In what place or relationship do you need to have more courage and boldness? At your school, in your home, in your neighborhood, in a particular relationship that you just never get around to saying anything about Jesus? Maybe you're here and you're between 15 and 20. And somehow you just thought of yourself as I'm just a receiver. I'm here at church and I go to the youth group or the college group and I just get... And I go to the college and they give me information, but I'm, I'm just a lake. I'm not a river. Be, be a river now. Don't wait. There's some place you can serve. There's some place you can take what you've been given and, and let it flow through you in some way. And maybe you're here as an adult and you're a lake and not a river. You, you don't really have an outlet. What, what could that outlet be? What, what would the Lord put on your heart this is a very brief time that we have. God expects to whom much is given, much is expected. What would that be for you? What would it be for us as a church? What would it be for me? Let's pray together. Lord, we are um, very thankful for Peter and John and these 11 who stood up. And they set a pattern for the church for now 2,015 years. Men and women in Wilmington, men and women in India, men and women all around the globe, standing up, uh, seriously taking to account their lives and the Great Commission. And I pray that you would help me to be this kind of person, to, to, to not be afraid of prison, to be really free with what I have to say and what I have been given to be a river and not a lake. I pray for this church and the people specifically here that we would model that for our community. That's our purpose. Strengthen the hearts of us. Strengthen those that are in, in India today preaching and proclaiming the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.